The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. About two years ago, my cousin died. A couple of months before he died, he told me a story about our aunt, his father's sister, my mother's sister. Story takes place in 1955. West of here, the town that I was raised in, Dubois, Pennsylvania. He at the time was a student at the Dubois Business College and he was walking down the street in Dubois. This is before the days of air conditioning. And he passed a bar. Inside the bar, he heard a woman cackling, fighting, arguing, loud, boisterous, the town drunk. It was our aunt. Uh, she was so notorious as the town drunk that my father, who was her brother-in-law, uh, denied being related to her. That's the story that my cousin told me about our aunt a couple of months before he died. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this week that we have to live for you. Now as we start the week off in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would... Give us attentiveness. I pray, Lord, that the students today would be interested in what is being taught. I pray, dear Lord, that you would give me clarity. I pray, God, that you would give me compassion for the students that I am speaking to. Most of all, dear Lord, I pray today that we can see and delight in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you very briefly this morning on the subject of restoration to illustrate what I mean for the need for restoration, several years ago I went in to get my hair cut. My barber was cutting my hair and before he started to cut my hair, I said, please leave a little bit on top so that I can move it around so as to deceive and appear as though I have hair. He's cutting my hair and a friend of his walks in, sits behind him and he starts to have a conversation with his friend while he's cutting my hair. So he doesn't see what's going on because he's talking to his friend, but I'm watching every bit of it because there's a mirror in front of me. When he ends up finishing the job, I say to myself, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. I need what is known as restoration. We live in a fallen world where restoration is much needed. All the king's horses and all the king's men are very, very busy. Entropy has an undefeated record. Fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales. And the place where we need restoration the most is where we feel it the least. It's not with our hair. It's not even with our relationships which break up or our finances which disintegrate or our bodies which break down. But where we need restoration the most is in our relationship with God. That is why Christ came the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that he might bring restoration. Well, I want to illustrate restoration for you today from a text from 2 Kings chapter 8. If you have your Bible, I would ask please that you would turn to this passage. We're just going to make our way through this verse by verse, and then I'm going to make three observations, and then we will be done. 2 Kings chapter 8 starts off with these words. Now, Elisha, let's just stop right there. Who was Elisha? Elisha was the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that came 
after Elijah. Elijah had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. The woman that is referred to here was introduced to us back in 2 Kings chapter 4. She's known as the Shunammite woman. She was a very hospitable and benevolent woman. She knew that Elisha would be passing her way from time to time, so she and her husband built a room on the top of their house where Elisha could stay when he passed through. He was very grateful for this, and he said to the woman, is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, I don't have any, I don't have any needs. I live among my people. I'm perfectly fine. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, said, I know what the woman needs. She's got a few miles on her, and her husband is already old, and they don't have any children. So Elisha says to the woman, next year at this time, you're going to have a child. Fade in, fade out. A year later, the little boy is born. A few years later, the little boy is out in the field working with his father. He begins to complain of a headache. He goes into the house, and there, in his mother's arms, with no warning whatsoever, the little boy dies. She picks the little boy up, carries him up the steps to the bedroom of Elisha and lays him on the bed. Now, Elisha was not there at the time. He was in Mount Carmel, which is 16 miles away. The woman makes the journey 16 miles to Mount Carmel. When she arrives, she tells Elisha that her son has died. Elisha at the time probably is not as fleet of foot. And so he says to his servant Gehazi, take my staff, don't talk to anybody, run back to Shunem, go in the bedroom and lay the staff across the little boy. He does that, nothing happens. Elisha and the woman make their way back to Shunem. They go up into the bedroom and in what is arguably the most unusual prayer meeting in all the Bible, the little boy is raised to life. That is the woman that is being referred to here. What Elisha says to her now in chapter 8 as an act of kindness is there's going to be a famine. It's going to last seven years. Why would a famine come? It was because of covenant unfaithfulness to God. To put that into perspective, back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine that lasted three and a half years, and as a result of that, people were dying. Here you have one that's going to be twice as long. You're not going to survive. It doesn't matter where you go. Just get out of here. So she and her family leave, and they travel to the land of the Philistines, and they stay there for seven years. Which brings us to verse 3. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. The king here is King Jehoram. He is the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, and the apple has not fallen far from the tree. He is a wicked and a godless king. Apparently what has happened is when she is gone, her property was confiscated, and we can deduce from this, it was taken from the government. Nothing ever changes. She comes back, she wants her property back, and she is appealing to the king for the restoration, that's our word for the day, her restoration of her house and her land. 
Now, when we get to verse 4, I find it to be one of the most unusual, inexplicable verses in all the Bible. I can read the English words and I can tell you what they mean. What I cannot tell you is why verse 4 is in the Bible or why it happened. It is bizarre. Look at verse 4. Now, the king, this wicked king, King Jehoram, was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying... Tell me all the great things or the miracles that Elisha has done. Now, this is bizarre on several levels. First of all, because this king hated Elisha, and on multiple occasions, he tried to kill Elisha. Also, it is bizarre because he himself was present for some of these miracles himself, so he would know of some of them already. It was also really crazy because of who it is that he is talking to and who it is he summons to give him this information. It is Gehazi, the now former servant of Elisha. He's no longer the servant of Elisha because he is a leper. The reason that he's a leper is because he tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. And so he's out of work. He's a leper. He's going to be a leper for the rest of his life. And the king just wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I've got nothing better to do today except to get a history lesson on the great works of God which were done by Elisha the prophet. Who can tell me about this? And he summons Gehazi and Gehazi begins to talk to him about the great works that Elisha has done. I have no idea why this wicked king wanted that information from that man. I believe it, but it is really bizarre. Which brings us to verse five. And this is the key to restoration. And while, W-H-I-L-E, while, at the same time, simultaneously, while, while he, Gehazi, was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, that is the woman which I just told you the story about, and while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, anytime you see the word behold, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, and Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman right in front of you, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Paint the picture in your mind's eye. King wakes up one morning, calls for Gehazi, and says, Tell me all the great things that the Lord has done through Elisha. Gehazi says, where do you want me to start? There's so many, I can't name them all, but we can begin when his uh, predecessor, uh, Elijah, was taken up into heaven on the other side of the Jordan River, you know, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home, gets picked up, taken to heaven, drops his mantle, Elisha catches it, he uses it to split the waters of the Jordan River, crosses over onto the other side. When he's there, he gets to Jericho. The water is bitter. He throws salt in the water. The water becomes sweet. From there, he moves on to Bethel. As he's going to Bethel, he is mocked because he is a bald man. What happens? Two bear come out of the woods and kill 42 young people. There was another time, I'm telling you the truth, there was down by the Jordan River. We had an axe. It was borrowed. The axe head falls off. It falls to the bottom of the Jordan River. What ends up happening? Elisha comes over, waves a stick over the water, and the axe head floats. I saw it myself. King, you yourself were there. You saw it. 
you know that uh, military expedition that we made where we were about to die of thirst and Elisha produces water without rain and without a river and we were able to defeat our armies. There was another time when he blinded an entire army. There was another time that he healed the Syrian general Naaman. This is why I myself am a leper today. There are so many miracles that he did. But King, by far, by far, the greatest miracle that he ever performed, I witnessed myself. King, there was this boy. I'm telling you, this boy was dead. He wasn't sick. He was, wasn't wounded. He was blue. He was purple. He was cold. He was stiff. He was dead. And Elisha walked into his bedroom, laid on top of him, prayed for him, and that boy came to life. I'm telling you, King, it was the greatest. That's him. That, that's him. While, W-H-I-L-E, while he was telling the story of the boy, the boy and his mother walk into the presence of the king. At first, I suppose the king is a little bit skeptical. He thinks perhaps that it is choreographed. He needs to corroborate the information. And so in verse 6, it says, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. She verified these facts. So what did the king do? So the king appointed an official for her, saying, restore, that's our word for the day, restoration, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, not only is she to get her house back, but she's to get her land back and everything that would have grown on that land for the past seven years, you need to give it to her. Grant her complete restoration. How did her restoration come about? Three ways. They all start with the letter P. Number one, it happened through providence. Providence. What is providence? Providence is the fact that God is sovereign and that he is in control of everything. He is in control of the movement of the largest planet and that of the smallest molecule and everything in between. He's got the whole world in his hands. He has a lock on everything, L-O-C-K. He limits, orders, knows, and controls all things. God is in absolute control of everything. He is absolutely sovereign. Let's do the math. What's the mathematical probability after 2,550 days, seven years, that on the exact same day, at the exact same hour, at the exact same moment, when... Gehazi was telling the story of the woman and her son that she would walk in almost as an actor in a play at the exact same moment when she and her son were being talked about. What's the mathematical odds of that happening by chance or being random? Is it like a hundred to one? I think it's, the odds are better than that. It's more like a million to one. So you're telling me there's a chance. There is no mathematical calculation which can bring a confluence of two people together after seven years when their name is just brought up unless someone is directing traffic. And what you have here is God directing traffic. It's God moving the heart of the king to want to know about the great works of God through Elisha. It is Gehazi telling the story at that exact same time, and it is the woman showing up on cue at exactly the right time. It is providence. It is God in control of everything. 
he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now, why are you at Karen University? Why are you where you are in your life right now? Why are you even sitting in the seat that you are sitting in right now? You certainly did make a volitional choice to be where you are, but there is also at play the direction and the guidance of God that is ordering all of our steps. Let me give you an illustration of how restoration was brought about through providence. Several years ago, I had a friend who was not a Christian. I had tried for many years to bring the gospel to him. He had many things going against him. First of all, he was from a scientific background and therefore he was raised as an atheist and he was a convinced atheist. He was also from a Jewish background and therefore he did not believe in Jesus. He also was a heroin addict and from time to time he was homeless. And all my years of witnessing to him, I only was able to get him to go to church once. Nothing happened during that worship service which would lead him to the Lord. Several years ago, I was having trouble getting a hold of him, and here's the reason why. One day when he was out, strung out on heroin and homeless walking the streets, he was hit by an automobile. When he was taken into the hospital, it was determined immediately that the clothes that he was wearing could no longer be worn because they were so filthy and so they were thrown away. And for about six or eight weeks, he was in that hospital being treated for his injuries and also being dried out from his heroin addiction. As providence, that's our word that brings restoration, as providence would have it, he was being cared for by a nurse. This nurse was not a Christian, but she was a very compassionate woman. She cared for him every day for six or eight weeks. When it was time for him to be released and go to a rehab center, which was 40 miles away from that hospital, they, they then discovered that he didn't have any clothes to wear. And so she went to one of her mother's friends, who was roughly the same size as this man, and said, could you just give me some clothes so that this man will have something to wear when he leaves? He gets the clothes, he leaves the hospital, he goes to the rehab center, he calls me. As providence would have it, the town where he was moved to the rehab center was a town where I knew several Christians. This was in another state. And so I began a group text with about 10 people and I said, here's a man, here's the rehab center where he is, here's his name, he is not a Christian, he needs help, would you please take the gospel to him? From this text thread, a woman immediately texted back and said, I know this man, I know who he is. My daughter is a nurse and she has been taking care of him for the last eight weeks. She loves him, I will go to the rehab center and I will minister to him. Moments later, another person checked in to the text thread, his name was Chris. Chris was the person that gave his clothes to this man and said, I'm on my way to the rehab center now. I don't know this man, I don't know what he looks like, I will just go in and look for the man who's wearing my clothes. <laughs> Long story short, these 10 friends of mine maniacally bring the gospel to this man and after about a month, he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. When he gives his testimony later, he said that the single factor which caught his attention the most was that was, it was mathematically impossible in his mind 
that my friend's daughter would take care of him and that my friend's friend would be the one that would take him clothes and that he would be in a town where I would have friends who would bring them this gospel. And when he realized then that there was a God, the dominoes began to fall and he realized that Jesus is Lord and professed him as Lord in Christ to be his savior. So what is happening in your life right now is not random. Young people will often look at something which is out of the ordinary and they will say, oh, that is so random. I understand what they mean. It doesn't happen that often, but it's not really random. It is happening by design. Another thing which is sort of popular in Christianese now is that when something will happen which is particularly good, people will say that is such a God thing. Well, I don't want to argue with that because it certainly is a God thing, but my question would be, can you point me to anything which is not a God thing? Everything is a God thing since God controls everything. So providence is working toward your restoration. It certainly did for the Shunammite woman and her son. Point number two is that our glorious message of restoration is brought about through pain. What's the greatest pain that this woman ever knew? I imagine it's the greatest pain that any person has ever known, and that is to lose a child. As the little boy who was feeling fine when he woke up that morning, went out in the field and walked back in with the headache, and then without warning died in her arms, I can't and don't even want to think very long about the pain that she felt as she was carrying that little boy up to Elisha's bedroom. And she made the 16-mile journey to Shunem, from Shunem to Mount Carmel, I don't even want to begin to think what was going through her mind and how she hurt. And even as she walked back with Elisha to her home, how she must have been mourning and hurting over the loss of her son and the grief which she experienced. But now play it out. If the boy doesn't die, then the boy isn't raised. And if the boy isn't raised, when she walks into the presence of the king and interrupts him while, she is, while he is talking to Gehazi, the king will say, who are you? And she'll say, I've been gone for seven years and my property was stolen. And he'll say, get in line, ma'am. We just had a seven-year drought. I'm not giving you your property back. The only reason why the king was willing to listen to her and to give her what she wanted was because her son was now alive. And there is no son who is alive unless the son dies. And unless the son dies, there is no pain. The pain actually is a component or an essential ingredient in bringing about her restoration. Now, I do not want to stand in front of you today and say that pain doesn't hurt. Pain, by definition, does hurt. And I don't know what kind of pain you are going through right now. I don't know if you are depressed. I don't know if you have just had a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I don't know if your parents are getting divorced. I don't know if there is some sort of nebulous cloud that is over you which has just caused you to be sad. I don't know if you're sick. I don't know what kind of pain you're going through, but I do know that man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble, and we live in a world where there is pain. But this pain is not meaningless. It's something that God uses to bring about good. Consider the story of Joseph. If Joseph is not the favorite, then he doesn't get the coat of many colors. If he doesn't get the coat of many colors, then his brothers don't hate him. If his brothers don't hate him, 
then they don't sell him into slavery. If they don't sell him into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. If he doesn't meet Potiphar, he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get falsely accused of rape. If he doesn't get falsely accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. If he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. If he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, then the cupbearer doesn't know that he can interpret dreams, and if his cup, the cupbearer doesn't know that. When Pharaoh has the big dream, the dream about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, then what's going to happen during the seven years of plenty is they are just going to squander that food. But as a result of him interpreting that dream, they do save that food. Well, if that dream is never interpreted, then they're going to squander that food. And if they squander that food, then the people in that region die. And if the people in that region die, then his family dies. And if his family dies, then his brother Judah dies. And if his brother Judah dies, there is no King David. If there is no King David, then there is no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell and so are you. However, all of those things did happen, and many of them were painful, and as a result, Jesus is born, and Jesus does die for our sins, and he is raised from the dead, and we are going to heaven, but how did it come about? It came about, providentially, through many painful things. Now, if you put blinders on any one segments. For example, here I am in jail in a country where I do not even know where I am for a crime that I did not even commit. You will become discouraged. However, when you lift off in your Romans 828 helicopter and you see the grand panorama of what God is doing, then, like Joseph, you can get to the end of your life when his brothers came to him and said, hey, we're really sorry for what we did. Please have mercy on us. And Joseph says, no, guys, you don't understand. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, as it is this day to save many people alive. And he didn't even know what he was talking about at that time, how many people ultimately would have been saved alive through their evil act and the pain that Joseph had to go through. You are going through pain right now. You want me to tell you why it's happening? I can't. You might never even understand it in this lifetime. But one thing I can tell you is that the sovereign God, the God of providence, does use that pain as an essential ingredient to ultimately bring about glory to himself. Or think about the greatest pain that the world has ever known. It happened on Mount Calvary, where for six hours, the spotless Lamb of God was beaten so mercilessly that he didn't even look like a human being. His visage was marred more than any man. And there he is, naked, hanging upon a cross, not just feeling the pain in his body, but he bore in his body our sins upon the tree, and holy God looks out of heaven at his son, and for six hours he hammers his son to death. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us, and holy God must punish sin. And so God hammers Christ to death for six hours to the point where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is pain such as the world has never known. Yet without that pain, my sin is not paid for. And so that pain 
is an essential ingredient. In fact, that pain is my salvation and your, pain, your salvation. What is the pain that you're going through right now? I do sympathize with you in it. I, I, I do know that it does hurt. But I want to encourage you with respect to restoration. It does not, it is not meaningless. It is an ingredient in God's grand scheme. Which brings us to our third and final point. How is restoration brought about? It is brought about by power. Specifically, the power of a risen son. The woman walks in. The king sees the son standing beside the woman. The king grants restoration not because of the meritorious benevolence of the woman who did something good for the prophet. The king hates the prophet. King wishes the prophet were dead. The king realizes that there is something unusual about the woman because she has a son standing beside her, a son who was dead but is now alive. He sees the power and as a result he grants restoration. Now, take the story and argue objectively from the lesser to the greater. If a wicked king seeing a risen son standing beside a woman, a son that was dead but is now alive but will die again, grants total restoration to a woman that he doesn't even know, how much more will a good, intentional, loving God not grant complete and total eternal restoration to us when he sees his son standing beside us, a son who was dead, but a son who is now alive and will be alive forevermore. For God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. And before the throne of God, I have a sure and perfect plea. What is that? It is the risen son who is standing beside me. And I am so thankful that in the final day, when I go to be judged, God is not going to be looking at me, but he is going to be looking at his son who is standing beside me, a son who died for me but is now alive. It is the power of a risen son that brings about restoration. That is the gospel objectively, and the gospel is of first importance, but I want to close with this. The gospel also has subjective influence and impact toward restoration. My aunt is the town drunk. In 1959, she is hammered. She's smashed. She falls down a flight of stairs and she breaks her back. She's in a hospital. As a girl, she was raised in church and so she knew about Jesus. She is in pain and not only is she in pain, but she is under conviction because she now gets a picture of herself. And in that hospital bed with a broken back, she cries out to the Lord and she says, if you save me, if you heal me, I will live the rest of my life for you. That is in 1959. The Lord saves her. She said it felt like a bucket of warm water was poured over her head. She received healing in her body and she was delivered from her sin. 
The Wednesday night after she gets out of the hospital, she goes to our little church, a little Christian and Missionary Alliance church, small church in Dubois, Pennsylvania. The custom then was on every Wednesday prayer meeting, the pastor would say, does anyone have a word of testimony for what the Lord is doing in your life? And various people around the congregation would get up and talk about what the Lord is doing in their lives. And so there she is in that prayer meeting, and the opportunity is given to give testimony for the Lord, and she says nothing. She sits quietly and says nothing. She walks to her house down the street that night. She goes into her bedroom. She gets down on the floor, and she begins to cry, and she says, Jesus, I have denied you tonight, and I promise you, if you will give me one more chance to go back to that church, I will never deny you again. I will always speak up for you. That's in 1959. I'm not born until 1961. I'm trying to be humorous, but I'm also being accurate in saying this. For the entirety of my life growing up in that church, and I was there every Wednesday night, when the pastor would stand up, and he did it every Wednesday night, when the pastor would stand up and say, does anyone want to give a word of testimony of what the Lord has done in your life? In actuality, what he meant was, would anybody like to go second? Because Mrs. Schaefer is going to be on her feet before any of you have the opportunity to say anything and give testimony for the Lord. And it was always her that was up first. It was always fresh. It was never stale. It was always alive. It was vibrant. What happened? What happened? There was restoration which was brought about and there was evidence of it. The woman did not come walking into the presence of the king carrying a corpse saying, you know, he was dead, then he came back to life, then he died again, and you need to believe me, and she's carrying him. No. No, the boy is standing there. There is the power of a risen son, and there is evidence because the boy is alive and the boy walks in. And there is evidence and there is life in my aunt's life because she was dead, she was the town drunk, and then what happened, the power of the gospel brought her restoration, and there was evidence of it. And so as I close right now, let me ask you about yourself. I'm not asking you, have you been baptized? I'm not asking you, have you walked an aisle or made a profession of faith? I'm not asking you, have you joined a church? I'm not asking you uh, if you're Sunday school teacher or if your parents have prayed a sinner's prayer with you. I'm asking you, are you alive? Are you alive today? Do you love Jesus Christ? Yes, you must know that objective truth that there is a risen Christ who is standing beside you and that is your objective standing before God. But there is also evidence that people who are alive give to those around them. And so... Restoration is brought about by the power of a risen son. Is that resurrection power evident in your life? Providence, God is controlling everything. Pain, welcome to the human race. You're going to experience it. God uses it to bring about restoration. Power, the power of a risen son, Christ standing beside you, 
saving your soul, forgiving your sins, and giving you new life. May God grant you restoration as you live out your days on this campus and for the rest of your lives. Father in heaven, thank you for these students. Thank you, Lord, for the faculty. Thank you for this university. Lord, thank you most of all for your son. Now, Lord, in Jesus' name, would you please grant restoration to your children for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before you leave this morning, I would just like to say if any of you would like to get to know me or you would like to talk to me, let me give you my telephone number right now. You can call me. Uh, it is 347-247-2549. Can we put that on the, on the board? Uh, uh, 347-247-2549. The reason I give you that uh, is we have a, an internship program at North Shore Baptist Church and some of our sister churches in New York City for students to come for the summer. If anyone's interested in that, um, come and talk to me. Hey, have a good day in class. God bless you.